All right, good morning, everyone. How are you today? Good. Are you excited to study God's Word this morning? I hope you are. Oh, I like that. Even a little woo out there. That's good. Hey, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going through the Gospel of Mark together. We'll be doing this until November. We've got, we've kind of interspersed some other series along the way, which helps to keep things interesting, but we are loving this study through the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 12. If you are new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're glad that you are here, or if you're watching us online, welcome to all of you who are watching us online as well. We're glad that you could be with us. You can also use the YouVersion Bible app. If you have that on your devices, go to events, look at First Free Church, you'll pull that up, or go to efree.org Bible, and you'll get what you need there as well to be able to follow along with us. Uh, before I get into my normal message, I actually want to go off script a little bit because I think that the, the testimonies that were just shared here were a really phenomenal example of how important it is to be in a group. And if you come here to church regularly, I would just want to challenge you to get involved in a group here. We have lots of groups here. We have MOPs. We have women's Bible studies that were mentioned earlier during announcements. Both of those are out in the lobby right now. We have lots of groups on Sunday mornings. We have groups throughout the week. Here's the thing. If you're just coming to this service, you are getting about half of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. You're not getting that closeness of relationship. You're not getting that depth of discipleship. You're not getting that bear each other's burdens. You are getting preaching, you're getting corporate worship, you're getting communion, you're getting baptism, and all those things are very, very important, but you are missing out on what it means to be a part of the body of Christ if you are not in a group. So I cannot stress that enough. We would love for 100% of the people who come to this church to be plugged into a group. And John Richardson has been doing a phenomenal job uh, improving and growing and building up our group's ministry. You're going to see more and more of that, and we're going to let you know about that as it happens. Okay, infomercial over, but I think it was a good infomercial. I think it's needed. Um, you need to know that my wife and I, we're in a group. That group uh, meets on Sunday mornings, so I don't get to go a lot because, you know, I'm here. But my wife is there. We love it. Great, great people. You'll go get great relationships that way. Please, please get into a group. Uh, I want to have a little bit of fun this morning. Is that okay? Can we do that? Are you okay with having a little bit of fun? Okay. I am going to show you something on the screen. It is a riddle. And I want you to see if you can guess what this is, okay? What can travel around the world while staying in a corner? What can travel around the world while staying in a corner? Somebody shout it out. Do you know what it is? Hey, very good. It is a stamp. How many of you were fooled by that? Anybody? You didn't know what that was? Nobody wants to admit it, but 90% of you were fooled by that. What has a head and a tail but no body? A little easier. A coin. Very good. Yes. It is a coin. Okay, let's try, let's try one more here. What kind of coat is always wet when you put it on? Some of you got it. It's a coat of paint. Very good. All right, so those are easy ones. Those are pretty simple. Your, your brain working now? Okay, here's a tougher one. Let's see if you can get this. What is greater than God, worse than evil, the poor have it, the rich require it, and if you eat it, you die? Greater than God, worse than evil, the poor have it, the rich require it. If you eat it, you die. Does anyone over here have it? Okay, good. Anyone over here have it? You got it. It is nothing, because nothing is greater than God. Nothing is worse than evil. The poor have nothing, the rich require nothing. And if you eat nothing, you will die. It is true. Now, did you notice what happened as I started to share those riddles with you? Your brain turned on. 
it started to think about what could the answers be to this. This isn't just a normal sermon where I can just sort of sit here and passively listen. This is challenging. What is the answer to this? And so for some of you, you are going back into your memory and thinking, okay, have I heard this before? What was the answer to this? And some of you have heard it. Um, I think maybe the ones that jumped up right away and got it, you know. And some of you, your brains were playing word association to try, okay, what could he be talking about? The rich and the poor and what is all that? And for most of you, to be honest, your brains were just shooting random words up at you, trying to fit them into those holes and figure out, okay, what makes sense here? But the point is your brains were activated. They were engaged. And that's what riddles do for us. They make us think. They present us with a challenging situation that we have to solve. And then we're, we're trying, to, trying to engage with that question, that problem. They turn us from passive listeners into active participants. And did you know that Jesus was a fan of riddles? Jesus was a fan of riddles. And this is so cool. In our passage today, Jesus is going to actually present a riddle to the people he's talking to, and the answer to the riddle actually has to do with himself. They don't necessarily get that right away. But Jesus is going to share a riddle today in Mark chapter 12. So by now, you have had enough time. You are in Mark 12, right? Everybody's in Mark 12? Okay, we're going to read starting in verse 35 together. And before we do this, let me just give you some context. We're only a few days away now from the crucifixion. So Jesus is now at this point where he's almost near his death on the cross. And then, of course, three days later, he'll rise from the dead. So he's looking forward to that that time. That's about to happen. And so, in preparation for this, he has been teaching a lot more stuff than usual, a lot more openly and bluntly than usual. He's been confronting the religious leaders. He's in the temple right now in Mark 12. He's in the courtyard, and he is teaching his followers, but the religious leaders of the existing system are all there. They're all around. Jesus, knowing he is about to die, he is going to leave. He is going to send in the Holy Spirit as, his, as, his, as a guide, as a comforter, as a helper, which we sang about a minute ago. But the religious system all around him shows what happens when corrupt people hijack a system that God put in place for good and use it for their own personal gain. And so there are religious leaders standing all over around him in this courtyard, in this temple, and over in the actual temple itself, where the high priest would go in, who represent a distortion, a perversion of what God had originally created to help bring the people back to him, to point the people back to him. And so Jesus is preparing his followers for a new movement that will replace that. And he does not want them to make the same mistakes that these other leaders have made. And so he's teaching them. Let's read in Mark 12, verse 35. Later, as Jesus was teaching people in the temple, he asked, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? And we could put that in quotes. It's a title that they gave him. Why do they claim that Jesus is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord... Now, that's a little confusing, so let me break this down for you. The Lord, that's God. My Lord, that's the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. That refers to God. Until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. That's the Messiah. 
So the Lord God said to my Lord, this is David speaking, my Lord, the Messiah, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David, now Jesus is speaking again here, since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Now why were they delighted at this? It's because this was fresh teaching. This was new insight. The Jewish scribes and religious elites knew the Old Testament well. They called it the Tanakh. This is the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And they had all these passages of scriptures that were messianic prophecies, and they talked about this. But as far as we know, this is the first time anyone had ever linked Psalm 110, which is where David is talking, to the Messiah. And when you look back at it, you go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But Psalm 110, as far as we know, this had never been linked to the Messiah before. And so the people are hearing this, and he's just engaged their minds with a riddle, and he's bringing fresh teaching, new thought, and yet squarely rooted in God's word. And so they were delighted by this. They were excited by this. They enjoyed listening to them. We need a little bit of background on this riddle to understand exactly what's going on here. Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David since David himself called the Messiah my Lord? How can the Messiah be his son? The son of David was not a biblical term for the Messiah. Now, the Old Testament was full of prophecies about the Davidic line leading to the Messiah. There were lots of prophecies from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the Psalms. There were lots of these that specified that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and would come through that line. But the title, Son of David, was something new that the religious leaders in this day had started using to refer to as shorthand for the Messiah or another term for the Messiah. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, some people would call out to him, and they would say, son of David. They recognized that this this title that the religious leaders used now to refer to the Messiah in their everyday communication, that, that that's who they were claiming this was, the son of David, the Messiah. But it wasn't a term that was used in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is questioning this title in a very respectful way. He's not being disrespectful. He's just raising the question, how can it be? that your leaders call the Messiah the son of David if the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David? How can David call that Messiah my Lord and elevate him to this position of honor? And Jesus is not trying to disprove them, by the way. He's not trying to say this is a bad title. He's just raising the question because he wants them to think, which I think is a wonderful principle for us. Jesus knows that the title son of David does not present a conflict here. We'll look at that a little later. Jesus knows that it's perfectly fine to call the Messiah the son of David. It's true, he's in the line of David. And yet, yes, the Messiah will be greater than David. Jesus knows the answer to this. And yet he's raising the question. I think that is really cool. Jesus knows that this is correct. He knows the answer to this, and rather than just kind of spill out the answer, he's raising a thoughtful question to get them to think. One of the principles that I think we can learn from this is that Jesus was not afraid to ask deep, challenging questions about religious things. 
even when he agreed with those things. Even when that title was technically true, Jesus was not afraid to raise a question. And this place should be a place where where we are open to skeptical questions. If we have the answers, then we have to be willing to face the questions. It can't be one of those situations where there are some things that are just taboo. We don't ask about that here. We don't talk about that. We sort of keep that to the side. No, this has got to be a place where it's okay to ask these kinds of questions. Jesus himself did it. Knowing the answer, knowing that the title was okay, he challenged the use of that title that the leaders used to get people to think, to get them to ask questions, to to wonder, to learn. Now, as an interesting side note here, Jesus confirms what the apostles Peter and Paul would later say as well about the inspiration of Scripture, right? He says that David spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Which I think is really neat that Jesus just confirms that for us right here. Peter says in 2 Peter, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So David, Jesus confirms, spoke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Because David is just a man. And the things David says could be wrong. And yet Jesus is clarifying here, now this is David speaking prophetically through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he says can't be wrong. Jesus is adding that level of clarity to say that what David said about referring to the Messiah as his Lord, he can't be mistaken here. He can't be wrong. So what do you make of this? We also have to understand that this was a highly uh, patriarchal society. So ancestors were always esteemed as a higher rank than descendants, forefathers were revered and respected. And we're not just talking about any forefather here. We are talking about King David. This is David. This is the guy who every Israelite looks up to. This is the guy that saved Israel. This is the the most amazing king in our history. We revere him. We honor him. We respect him. It would be so inappropriate to ever say that a descendant of his was greater than his. It would be so inappropriate to ever say that a descendant of his had a higher rank than he did. That's David. This society reveres and respects and honors the forefathers. There's no way they could ever be greater than David. And what's crazier than that is this is David himself saying it. David himself saying the Messiah is my Lord. How could David do this? This is the riddle that Jesus puts forth to the people. And as far as we know, he did not answer it for them. He sort of just left it there, hanging. Have you ever had someone share a riddle with you and then not tell you the answer? Isn't that irritating? It's so frustrating. I mean, now, thankfully, we have phones and Google, and we can just, oh, that's what it was. Great. There there aren't a lot of riddles that you can't find the answer to online. But how irritating would that be? And yet Jesus, as far as we know, wants them to wrestle with this. They probably did not fully understand what any of this meant until much later. Of course, we know the the answer. How can the son of David be greater than David when the son of David is also the son of God? And this is what Jesus had been communicating to his followers lately, leading up to his crucifixion. He's trying to tell them, I am not 
the physical Messiah, Savior of Rome that you all thought I was. He is going to do something so unorthodox, so unexpected in how he brings about salvation of people that goes way beyond the physical salvation from Rome. It's salvation of their souls. And so Jesus keeps teaching them, this is bigger than that. This is more than that. This isn't just some descendant of David, some ordinary human being who comes in and and breaks the chains of Rome and sets up a, a nation for Israel that's favorable to them. This is way more than that. And so... He wants to highlight the fact that the Messiah will be greater than David. Something very unusual to say about a descendant of someone. Now, I have no doubt that later on, after Jesus died, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, and then he took off, that his followers would sit around and reflect back on their time with him. I mean, they had to just be letting their minds go crazy. Remember, do you remember what he, what he did there? You remember what he did on the lake? Remember when we were with those 4,000 people? Yeah, well, I, that was nothing. I saw the 5,000 people. Do you, do you remember what Jesus said when he, when he gave that riddle in the temple courtyard about the Messiah being greater than David and yet the son of David? Yeah, that all makes sense now. And so I think that they probably, some of them for a long time, didn't fully understand What exactly Jesus was talking about? Until later, they started to put the pieces together and connect the dots, and a million light bulbs are going off as they're figuring out, wow, that is what Jesus was getting at. You see, Jesus, before he died, was preparing them. He was teaching them things that they wouldn't fully understand until later. Why? Because this was not going to be the same system of leaders that was already in place in the religious system. We talked a few weeks ago about the parable of the landowner who leased a vineyard to tenants who behaved very irresponsibly and they were greedy and they wanted to take it all for themselves. And when the landowner sent servants to come collect his portion of the harvest, they would beat them, send them away, and sometimes kill them until eventually they killed the man's own son. And what does Jesus say? The landowner will come back and he'll kill those wicked tenants and he will then lease out the land to new tenants who will do what is expected of them, who will be appropriate and fair. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is preparing for new tenants, new leaders in his spiritual movement that he is launching to replace the old system that has become corrupt with leaders who have not been faithful to the charge that God gave to them. So they're sitting around, sharing stories, reflecting back on this time, Puzzle pieces are starting to come together. And now the question is, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How do we live our lives in such a way? How do we lead in such a way? How do we tend to the vineyard in such a way that it reflects on this incredible thing that Jesus Christ has done for us? How do we respond to all of that? Jesus was preparing them. He said earlier, we talked about love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the two greatest commandments. From those two flow all of the others. He's preparing them. He's teaching them. He's getting them ready. He wants them to love God and love others. And now what he's going to do in Mark chapter 12, the next couple of verses we look at, he is going to give them an example of what not to do. 
He's going to give them an example of what happens when you don't love God or love your neighbors. Here's the problem. We tend to design our lives around loving ourselves, not God or others. This is what you and I do. We design our lives around loving God, around loving ourselves, instead of loving God and loving others. And this was the problem for them in that day. It's what the religious leaders were doing at that time. Every day you make choices about whether or not you will love yourself more or love God and love others more. You make that choice when someone spills their drink on you at the ball game. In that moment, you will respond in some way. Will your response reflect a love of God and a love of the other person? Or will it reflect a love of yourself and your inconvenience and your frustration, your irritation at that situation? What is of more value to you in that moment? Is it your shirt or is it this person for whom Christ died and who God loves? Love of self or love of God and others? You make that choice when you're driving down the road and someone whips in front of you and you suddenly have to slam on your brakes. In that moment, do you love yourself more or do you love God and others more? It's so frustrating. They cut you off. You have to reset your cruise control. Oh, it's irritating. (laughs) Maybe this is a little too personal. A few weeks ago, I was heading to a a meeting and someone did cut right in front of me on the road. I had to slam on my brakes to avoid hitting them. Almost got in an accident. And the car behind me had to slam on his brakes to avoid from hitting me. And in that moment, as I was just kind of sitting there in the road, realizing what had just happened, I just prayed blessings on that person in front of me. Just, (laughs) God, would you? No, I was angry. I was frustrated. What were they thinking? So that they could shave three minutes off their commute and I have to turn around to come back to that exit. They decided to whip over in front of me going very slowly. So I had to slam on my brakes. We almost got killed because of their hastiness. And then the moment of conviction came and I realized I should probably pray for them, not be so angry at them. You see, we make choices. This is what I'm talking about. We make choices every day about whether or not we're going to love others and love God more or love ourselves more. We make those choices with our spouses, with our coworkers, with our kids, with our friends, with people at church. Are we going to love God and love others? Or are we going to love ourselves? Now, why did I go into all this? Because of what's about to happen in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is going to give his followers an object lesson, a case study, if you will, in how to not love God and love others and how to be lovers of self. He's going to give an example using the very people who just a little while ago asked him, what are the greatest commandments? And he said, love God, love others. And the scribe says, yes, I I know that. And yet he's going to use them as an example of what not to do. So Mark 12, 38. Look at verse 38 with me. Jesus also taught Beware these teachers of religious law. Those are the scribes. For they like to parade around in flowing robes. Flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this they will be more severely punished. 
What's happening here is that Jesus is giving them a case study in how not to please God. You want to please God? You want to follow what he says? Love God. Love others. Everything else will flow from that. You want to not please God? Love yourself more. Choose yourself over others or God. It's really a fairly simple formula, but it's one that we mess up all the time. Every day we wrestle with this. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's basically saying, don't be that guy. Here are all these examples, six things we're going to look at, six warnings. Don't be like those guys because he's about to leave and put them in charge and he wants them to be different. This is going to prepare them for that. Let's look at these six areas together. Six examples. There's a list in your notes if you want to follow along with these. I'm going to ask for a little interaction here. So you ready for that? The first example, the first warning that Jesus gives is about appearance. Everybody say appearance. Oh, very good. Thank you. You're all awake. Jesus says that the leaders cared so much about their appearance that they wore these long white robes. Why? So everyone would pay attention to them. Most scholars think that the reason they did this was because the priestly uniform involved these long white robes that sort of set them apart in their duties in the temple. And so they would wear these, and probably what happened is the scribes sort of adopted a junior version of that dress code because they wanted people to know how important they were. They wanted to walk around with a special outfit to let people know that they were something special, to kind of boost their social prominence. They wanted people to know that they were religious experts, so they literally wore their credentials on their sleeves as they walked around. They craved attention, and they used appearance to get it. So Jesus' warning here is about using our outward appearance in a way that points people to ourselves. We have a term for those things. They're called status symbols. Status symbols. When we take something, we buy something, we we wear something because we're trying to point people to ourselves. Now understand, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with, with having resources. Many people in the Bible had great resources and great things. The question is one of motivation. The question is one of when we're buying that item, is it because it's going to be useful to us or because we're going to get enjoyment out of it or because it's going to help someone or is it simply to show off, to show off how wealthy we are, to show off our position, our prominence? What's the motivation behind that thing we have? Is it a status symbol to us that's meant to draw attention to us in an unhealthy way? The second warning that Jesus gives is that these people like respectful greetings in the marketplace. So everybody say respect. They wanted respect. They craved respect. They demanded respect. It's one of the reasons for the white robes, so that when they would walk in the marketplace, people would know how important they were. And here's how this worked in this society. People of lower rank were supposed to greet people of higher rank. So you would never see a scribe walking around going to some some lowly person and saying, hi, how are you? Let me help you. You wouldn't see that. That would be humility. What you would see instead is a scribe walking through with sort of a pompous attitude and expecting all the little people to come up and greet them. Sort of a kiss the ring kind of situation. Like I'm big stuff and I want you to greet me. They loved these respectful greetings in the marketplace because it reinforced their rank over these other people. By contrast... Here's how Peter talked about the leaders of the new movement, the church, the New Testament church. 
He said, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. It's in our sinful nature to crave power and prestige. And the truth is some people hijack Christianity for the pursuit of their own power and ambition. We see it all the time. It's what happened with the Judaic system. You had corrupt people who got into positions of power who used it for their own personal gain. The same thing happens today where people will hijack something that God has put in place for the care of his people and they use it specifically to build up their own status or importance or influence. That's why it's so important that you understand that the elders and the pastors of this church, we're actually normal people. And we struggle just like you do every single day. I had somebody come up to me a few weeks ago and they were talking about one of the struggles that they had. And I, I mentioned that I've struggled with that at times too and it just shocked them. Like, but you're a, he literally said, but you're a senior pastor. Yeah, we're normal people. We wrestle with these things too. We struggle with things. And, and yes, God has gifted pastors and elders and leaders in the church and ministry gifting areas and leadership areas to, to help them. But the truth is, we're all still trying to figure out how to be better parents, better spouses, better followers of Jesus. Every single day we're wrestling through those things. There's no special weird kind of prominence or holier-than-thou sort of attitude that should be there among leaders in the church. We're all together going through this. God has just given us different roles in that process. Sometimes when I'm meeting someone for the first time, I really hope that they don't ask me what I do right away. Because we can be talking for a few minutes, having a great conversation, and then suddenly they go, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, great. We were having such a great talk. There it goes. And then I say, I'm a pastor, and they apologize for the words they've used the last five minutes. <laughs> and I have to go, it's fine, it's fine, let's just talk. And then the conversation takes a different turn. There's this sort of weird respect thing that sometimes happens, not with everyone, but some people, that happens when they find out that, oh, you're a, you're a pastor. And the reality is, we're normal people. We struggle with things just like everybody else. There is no special rank there. It is a different role that God has given God has given us different gifts. We talked about that recently in here. Different gifts to serve in different ways. We're still going through this journey together. Number three, the third warning is that they love seats of honor in the synagogue. Everybody say honor. In the synagogue, there were some seats that were more prominent and visible than others. There were certain seats that kind of be like, have you ever been in one of those churches where they've got the big old seats on the, on the stage? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have been in a church like that? Okay, some of you, okay, you remember when you'd have three chairs over here and three chairs over there, and you make sure that the prominent people are sitting in those chairs or something like that, and I know that it wasn't always a bad thing. I'm not saying that was a bad thing, okay? But it was that type of a deal where you had these prominent seats at the front of the synagogue, and these guys were fighting over who got to sit in those seats. They loved those spots. Why? Because it showed them to everybody else, they were visible to everybody else, these were the spiritual experts, these were the religious gurus. These were places of prominence. Now, we don't have special seats like that in this church, unless you count the balcony, because those people are closer to God. So, 
Good job. But maybe what I could liken this to in our church is when people want to impress you with how much they know or who they know or what they're involved with. And so they're dropping bits of information or they're trying to share things they've done in their past or it just seems like they're constantly trying to point back to themselves. Well, I did this. Well, I did that. Well, I do this. Well, I know this. They like sharing that information. And those people, to be honest, they're toxic because like the people Jesus is talking about, they're trying to utilize that position, whatever they have, to try to get you to respect them, to to try to get you to be impressed by them. That's the opposite of what Jesus said leaders ought to be doing. Not trying to impress other people with how much they know or what they've done. Philippians 2.3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. In everything we do, we need to be pointing people to God. Because the truth is nothing good that we have accomplished happened without God allowing it to happen and equipping us and enabling us and giving us the talents and abilities and gifting to do it. There is not a single good thing that I have ever done that I can take credit for. Do you believe that? There is not a single good thing that you have ever done that you can take credit for. It is all a grace of God in our lives. And yes, we have to respond to that the right way. But we can't take credit for it. We can't try to impress other people with what we've done. That's inappropriate for a leader to do that. The fourth warning is very similar. They love the best seats at banquets. Everybody say special treatment. Thank you. I know that was harder. We're getting a little more difficult as we go. They loved special treatment. This is very similar to the seats in the synagogue, except now it's not just a prominent place in the religious sphere, which made sense because they were religious experts. Now they want that to go outside of there. At your party, they want a special spot. They want to be at the best table, the place where everybody's going to see them, where they're going to bring out the best food. They want to be in this special place of honor and be treated specially because of their status as a scribe. Now, the example that Jesus gives us is very different. Back in Mark chapter 10, just a couple chapters earlier, Jesus says this, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. And then he uses himself as an example. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a fifth warning that Jesus gives. And this one reveals just how corrupt these leaders had become. Not only were they attention-seeking people, trying to impress others with their prominence and their dress and all these other things, but they actually went so far as to cheat widows out of their property. So everybody say greed. Greed is the fifth warning. They cheated people out of their property. Back then, they didn't have the same social safety nets that we have today. They didn't have the charities that we have today. And so a widow was just about the most vulnerable person in their society. Not always. Sometimes there were widows who had a a good amount of wealth built up or their husbands left them with a lot of money in some cases. But in many cases, a widow was the most vulnerable person. Once her husband was gone, she didn't have anyone to provide for her. There wasn't always a good way for her to earn income. And maybe all she had left was her clothes and her property. And if she had kids, it was even harder. And so... The law states, the the law of Moses states that they were supposed to protect and care for widows, not cheat them. In Exodus 22, 
We read, you must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. In Deuteronomy 24, true justice must be given to foreigners living among you and to orphans, and you must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. Why? Because that's probably the only coat she had, and it would be cruel to take it from her. We don't know exactly what Jesus meant by cheating the widows out of their property for these scribes. There have been different theories thrown out there. There's the idea that maybe these scribes were entrusted with their estates, helping to look after them and care for them, and they ended up actually using that to leverage that so that they could get the estate for themselves, get the property for themselves. Or maybe they managed to convince these widows to sell it to them at a very, very low price for favor with God. Some scholars think that probably what happened is because the widows didn't have a source of income and they needed to get food and supplies and whatnot, that the scribes would lend them money and they would take their property as collateral for that loan and at the very first possible opportunity, they would collect on that and take over their property and, and they would build their wealth that way. That would certainly be in the spirit of Deuteronomy 24, not taking a garment for collateral. These were the very people that should have been helping the widows. These were the very men who should have been caring for them. Also back in the law, we see the command for farmers to leave the corners of their fields so the widows could come along and pick the grain that was left there. They were supposed to leave some food there for them for free. And it's very interesting too. It doesn't say farmers go ahead and pick all the food and then just get, go to house to house and give it to them. It says, no, they need to come and they need to work for it too. They need to do something to get it, but you leave it there for them for free. The Old Testament talks about the importance of the Israelites having open hands to the poor. These are the people that are supposed to be caring for the widows. And yet they're cheating them out of their resources. What they failed to understand And what we often fail to understand today is that none of the resources we have are ours to keep. They will all be gone from us at some point. We are temporary owners of these things. Really, we're borrowers of these things from God. This is all God's resources anyway. And he has entrusted with us with them and expects us to use them wisely. And how foolish of us to ever think that cheating someone else out of their resources is somehow going to get us ahead in life. What you're really doing is cheating them out of the resources God has provided for them. Not a good idea. At the end of this service, we're going to take a benevolence offering. This is something we do every time we we practice communion so that we can give to help those in need in our community. And this church is incredibly generous. So many people get help throughout the year through our benevolence offerings. It's really, it's astonishing. The idea here is that after our regular giving in the service, we give above and beyond sacrificially to help people who are in need. And then beyond that, we look for other ways to help people. Maybe it's mowing their yard. Maybe it's taking them a meal. Maybe it's fixing something around their house. We look for opportunities to bless other people and to help other people who are in need, certainly never seeking to cheat them out of their resources. Loving God and loving others means protecting and helping the most vulnerable not working against them. There's a sixth warning that Jesus gives, or a sixth accusation. After the leaders cheat widows out of their houses, they go on to pray long, pious prayers in public. So say this after me, super pseudo-spirituality. So here's what happened. 
There was a misspelling in this in the first service. I went to fix it, and I made it worse. (laughs) Super pseudo-spirituality. Say that. Okay, now say it three times fast. Yeah, you didn't make it very far. I wouldn't either. Super pseudo-spirituality is this idea that we're going to try to, to do something elaborate and showy and spiritual and religious and public because we want everybody to know how spiritual we are. We want everybody to know how religious we are. And the amazing thing here is that Jesus is contrasting these two activities. On the one hand, they're cheating widows out of their houses. And on the other hand, then they go in the public and they do these long prayers, these elaborate prayers to try to show people how spiritual they are when they just stole a house from a woman. How terrible is that? Super pseudo-spirituality, this grandiose kind of religious pompousness. And yet he said that inside, it was like they had dead bodies in there, like they were whitewashed tombs with dead bodies inside. It's a terrible thing. When I was younger, I had a pastor. He was an older gentleman, probably in his 70s, and uh, he was at my church for a while. And I remember um, he had this sort of incredibly pompous sort of spiritual attitude about him. And by that, I mean he wanted everybody to know how spiritual he was. He would drop little hints here and there at just how spiritual he was. And I don't think he was a particularly well-studied guy, but he wanted everyone else to think that he was. And so when he preached, he would try to throw as many Greek words into his sermon as he could, even though they made no sense at all. Like, why would you share that word there? So if he were reading John 3.16, it would, it would kind of go like this. He would say, for God, that's theos in the Greek, singular, masculine, so loved the world, cosmos in the Greek, accusative, that he gave, that's eidokin in the Greek, that's aorist, active, indicative. It took us a long time to get through verses. <laughs> he would throw in these extra words because he wanted us to know that, I guess he could read an interlinear Bible or something, and he, he wanted people, I think, to, to think that he was very well-learned and studied and spiritual. And that's the kind of idea here, it goes way beyond that, to to the fact that whenever we're doing something in public to try to be showy with our spirituality, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus wants from us. He'd rather have us go pray in a closet. Now, was Jesus saying that it was wrong to pray in public? No. Was Jesus saying that it was wrong to pray long prayers? Maybe sometimes. There have been a few that I've wanted to say, you know, does your train have a caboose? Let's wrap this up here. But, no, that is not what Jesus was saying. He's getting at the motivation. Why are they doing it? They've just done something evil, and now they're putting on this spiritual show. And that's the problem. It's about the spiritual show that they were putting on. What do these six things reveal about their hearts? It reveals their love for themselves, not their love for God and others. These are six ways that they loved themselves more than God or others. And so what about you? Do you see yourself in any of these six things? Do you see your pursuit of appearance to try to present yourself in a certain way and point people to you? Do you crave respect and honor so much that you're trying to manipulate things to get people to be impressed by you? Do you seek special treatment from other people in a way that would be inappropriate? If Jesus were to evaluate your life today, would he find that your motivation for a lot of what you do is actually greed? Or is your spiritual life marked mostly by what you do in public, not in private? Not an intimate relationship with God, but when you're around other people, you know the right things to say, the right things to do to make it look like you're more spiritual 
than you are. And maybe you see yourselves in some of these. Today we're going to have communion together. And you're going to have an opportunity where, while we're passing the elements where you're going to be able to just sit and reflect and think. And it would be a great time for you to ask God to reveal any areas here or any others that he wants to refine in your life. How are you doing? Jesus prepared his disciples with this example of what not to do. Don't be that guy. Love God, love others. Let everything else flow out of that. Let's pray as we get ready for communion. God, your word is an amazing teacher to us. You have left us such an incredible example in your son and how he came to serve other people. And we struggle every day with this idea of loving ourselves more than we love you and we love other people. And so I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for everyone watching online, Lord, that you would help us to see areas in our lives where we have fallen into one of these six traps or maybe multiples where we've been trying to use our appearance or, or seek special treatment or respect or honor or greed's been our motivation or we just try to present this showy kind of spiritual self that's not real in our lives. Lord, help us now as we remember the sacrifice you made for us to orient our lives, to design them around loving you and loving others. Give us fresh and creative ways to do that, God. Reveal things in our lives that we need to change so that that can be what we're all about. Not loving ourselves, but loving you and loving others. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.